with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Welcome to Marching Orders, a this week community news podcast series devoted to Central Ohio military veterans sharing their experiences. I'm Scott Hummel. Let's get right to it. Our guest today first served in the Army from 1990 to 1999. In 99, he entered the Ohio Air National Guard, where he recently was promoted from Senior Master Sergeant to Chief Master Sergeant, and from Avionics Superintendent to Aircraft Maintenance Squadron Branch Chief of the 121 Air Refueling Wing at the Rickenbacker Air National Guard Base. He has participated in Operations Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Joint Forge, Northern Watch, Enduring Freedom, Iraqi Freedom, and Inherent Resolve. His major decorations include the Meritorious Service Medal, Air Force Commendation Medal with one device, Air Force Achievement Medal with two devices, and the Meritorious Unit Award. State awards include the Ohio Commendation Medal with one device and the Ohio Special Service Ribbon. In January 2013, he was honored with the 2012 Serviceman of the Year Award by the Young Astronauts Program of Metropolitan Columbus. And in November 2018, he delivered the keynote address for Canal Winchester's Veterans Day observance. From Pickerington, Ohio, Chief Master Sergeant Edward Taylor III, welcome to Marching Orders. Hey, thanks. Ed, first off, congratulations on the promotion. How does it feel to now have all the stripes you can get? Man, oh man. Um, It feels wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Um, At times, it's a little surreal because you have to get used to... um, uh, being called chief, um, because then, you know, that's the pinnacle of a career. Um, but it's, it's, I'm honored, I'm blessed. Um, and it's a, a great and wonderful feeling. And let's talk about that veterans day ceremony in canal Winchester last November. What was it like for you to get that call to give the keynote address? And what was the takeaway point of your message? Um, uh, again, it was an honor. I, when anyone looks at me and, and, and asks me to speak, I, I um, do what I can to try to get there to them because it, I feel honored that they want, you know, little me to come say something. Um, my biggest takeaway was getting to um, tell my story or the original reason why I'm in the Air Force or in the military uh, was because my grandfather and the stories he used to tell me about the Tuskegee Airmen. And tell us a little bit about your family. What what keeps you busy these days? What do you do in your free time? You married with kids, and you told me uh, earlier that you like to tinker a little bit as well. Oh, I'm I'm definitely a tinker. Um, but I'm married, happily married, uh, wonderful wife Sonia, and, uh, four beautiful kids. Um, they all keep uh, keep the both of us uh, very busy these days between uh, work and football, track, um, instrument lessons, and that sort of thing. But I do like to tinker. Um, just bought a 3D printer not too long ago and uh, um, having a, a ball with that. Now, what's some of the things you're creating there? Um, knobs and, and little pieces parts right now. I haven't uh, mastered it yet to really get to uh, some gears and some other things that can actually work together. But um, turning knobs and uh, just little widget things is really cool. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Now, you were born and raised in Canton, Ohio. What was it like growing up? Did you have a, a big family, small family? Um, I'd say kind of a medium-sized family. It was myself and two younger brothers, um, and all three of us have served, and, and the two of us are continuing to serve, so I, I take huge pride in that. Um, a lot of cousins, um, aunts, uncles, nieces, and nephews, but not overly big, just the three of us. 
You went to McKinley High School, right where the Pro Football Hall of Fame is. Mm-hmm. Now, how cool was that? Were you a football fan, and could you look out the window and see the field? Did you make it any the games there? Absolutely. Um, so I played football in, um, in high school, so I got a chance to play on the field. I was also in the marching band my senior year because of an injury, so I got a chance to uh, march in the field as well, um, along with the, um, the Hall of Fame Day parade that led up to the uh, Hall of Fame game later on that afternoon. So it was, it was a great time in, uh, in, in my high school memory with uh, participating in those things. And you went to the University of Akron in Grantham University, and you were a zip. Was that right after high school? That was directly after high school, yes, sir. My daughter, she's also a zip. Um, and uh, you had mentioned that your grandpa, his interest in flying and Tuskegee Airmen. So what prompted your, your interest in the military? Was, was it your family's background? Or were you the first? And had you always wanted to be a pilot? I did always want to be a pilot. Um, family didn't have a huge background in the military. Um, I had a couple great uncles. Um, but I do remember specifically both my grandfathers and my um, father, you know, back in, in the, the time um, during World War II, um, black men were, you know, stereotyped of having flat feet. Um, and if uh, you had flat feet, then, you know, some recruiters did not allow you to to get in. So both my grandfathers wanted to serve, um, being from Mississippi and Virginia, respectively, both wanted to serve at various times uh, in their life, but weren't able to. My father, likewise, um, but uh, he never got drafted, um, but didn't uh, get recruited or anything like that. But he did, you know, want to serve as well. But, um, yeah. Um, not a huge family history, but uh, like I said, my, both my brothers and I, um, all three of us serve, a couple cousins, but not a huge military family, uh, but definitely it's been uh, a big part of uh, the Taylor family. And you heard, had you heard of um, guys like Eugene Bullard, the uh, the black American pilot who had served in the French military during World War One because he wasn't allowed to serve in the American military? I didn't learn about him until after I was in, uh, became a zip, as a matter of fact. I took a African-American studies class. But um, prior to that, you know, my, my, my grandfather, I don't believe he knew of that. He just knew of what was um, what was told and what he read back in uh, being from down south about those folks. So he'd tell me about those guys um, and the stories he had heard. And you've talked before, you and I had talked before, you'd mentioned uh, Ben Davis, Jr., the West Point graduate and son of a, a mm-hmm. brigadier general who became the first black general in the U.S. Air Force, and Chappie James, the first uh, black four-star general in 75. Did you look up to guys like that as well? Absolutely. Once I was became familiar with their names and their stories, definitely uh, became huge fans of, of their careers and wanted to emulate them. You're listening to Marching Orders. Now, you started in the Army in 1998, and it's right about the time Operation Desert Shield was, was getting started, and that was in August. Then Desert Storm in 91. What was your sense at the time? I mean, I, I guess most people were probably pretty nervous about something coming. Were you worried at the time? Um, I wasn't really worried because I didn't know what to expect. Um, a lot of the, the Army folks, so the soldiers that were training, uh, training me and training my my age group of uh, of soldiers, you know, were peacetime members. So they really had no idea of what we were about to get into. So a lot of it was uncertainty, um, but still wanted to get to it because that's why you, you know, ultimately that's why you serve. And what was your role at the time? Uh, I was a uh, armament mechanic uh, on the uh, Cobra S model uh, attack air- helicopter. Great airplane, by the way, or great helicopter, by the way. And you moved to the Air National Guard. That was in 99. And then two years later, 9-11 occurred. Do you remember where you were and what you were doing 
when you heard about those planes hitting the twin towers? Absolutely. We were we were just uh, um, just doing some maintenance on aircraft in the hangar, and uh, several of us had just come come in, uh, getting ready for break. Um, when the TV was on, and we started uh, looking at the news, and we all kind of like stopped in our tracks um, to watch that. Um, and I can remember distinctly one of our one of our guys said. That's it. We're going to war, boys. And your background was in aircraft maintenance at the time. You had a pretty good grasp of aviation and avionics. Did you sense just with your knowledge and experience when that first plane hit that it was an attack? Absolutely. It did. did. Yes, aircraft just don't do that. So what was it about it? Um, the, the direction. Um, we have systems in place um, on the aircraft, uh, TCAST, Terrain Co- uh, Collision Avoidance System, um, which is specifically designed to um, to let you know that you're, you're coming up on something or going to hit something or you're coming too close to the ground or whatnot. Um, you know, and that's, that's a system specifically designed to keep you out of obstacles or keep obstacles out of your way, and you just don't, you don't do that. So it was clear that it was going to. It was intentional. Those types of unintentional things don't happen. Absolutely. And of course, I think all of us we felt vulnerable. We're angry, sad, wanting to do something, but not really sure what. For you, as a military guy, where was your focus? Was it more of a sense of I want to go over there and kick butt, or or want to stay back and help pick up the pieces and, and make things occur here? What was your sense at the time? What was your focus? Um, uh, being an aircraft maintenance, you're, you're tip of the spear. You want to go out there and get it. You want to, you know, we fly to put bombs on targets. Um, that's what we want to do, and that's what uh, all of us, me particular, had a, a sense of I'm ready to get it going. And you went through basic training, of course, but, and of course, your eyes training for the possibility of war, but did you ever get the sense in basic that, hey, this might really happen someday? I might really be in a war scenario where I've got to go and kick some butt right um no when i went no it it, it we hadn't been at war you know since vietnam and i can't think the cold of the, war. the cold war that's one thank you the cold war was you know winding down when i went so everybody was kind of you know throttling back and um getting used to to peace and have been at peace for you know 10 or 12 years or 14 years or so by the time i went to basic so um you know in basic no i didn't I didn't. I wanted to fly. That was the reason I wanted to be in the military. So I wanted to fly, and that was, you know, my focus in the military was, or when I was in basic to, to get through everything so that I have a chance to fly. Did it feel like the training was sufficient for what you were going to get into? When you, th- when you look back at it now, I'm sure at the time, you know, you're thinking it was, but then when you think about the actual experience and you look back, does it seem like the training was sufficient for the task? I, I would have to say I do because what – you know they can't train you specifically they train you're in a, in a, in a basic training class with a whole bu- bunch of folks that are going to do different things so basic training you know is kind of a bland operation however i do think the purpose is to you know bring you in beat you down build you back up and send you on your way and and in 1990 that's what they were doing we were still being able to you know get you called everything but a child of god and um i can remember brown rounds hitting me in the the the, the rim of my nose when drill started getting my face and started telling me what to do and I do remember that, and I and I truly look back on that time as a very fond, fond time in my professional career because it definitely makes me grateful of what I have and what I've achieved uh, today. Yeah, and just even the climate over there, just with the weather. I mean, in the summer it gets brutally hot, mm-hmm. and in the winter is pretty cold. How do you prepare for those types of things? 
you really don't until after you've experienced it once then you know uh, better how to to go in there you know you you take your cold weather gear and you take your hot weather gear and you just got to make sure that you stay hydrated on both ends of that because you can become dehydrated you know cold as much as you can hot so um take the advice of of folks that are coming back or have been before and just listen to them um eat hydrate and stay physically fit and those are the three main things that you can do to to take care of yourself while you're in a uh, a highly fluctuating climate like that because you can go from cold to blistering hot in a matter of hours mm-hmm. you're listening to marching orders i'm with chief master sergeant ed taylor <laughs> Uh, now, you participated in Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom in Af- Afghanistan and Iraq, respectively. You've been in Bahrain, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Emirates and Turkey. Now, you told me Turkey's citizens, they're pretty friendly. They like to build relationships and, and even and do business, that type of thing. Yes, sir. De- describe them. What was it like getting to know them in Turkey? It's really interesting um, to, to go out on the town, to go out on and in the local economy and, and you look for things because they have a, they they hand make a lot of things but also they import a lot of things and very reminiscent of a swap meet or flea market type of uh, environment you go down there and, and and the biggest thing that you want to take away from that is making sure you stop and and establish a relationship with the individual even if it's for five or ten minutes to at least say hi and speak and be cordial versus getting right to business jib driven so, you know, you go down to the markets, you go down to the shops and you, you, you talk to shop owners and, yeah, they want you to come in their shop. But if you spend time in their shop, um, they'll bring you out some tea. Um, you sit down, you, you drink tea, and you, can, you, you talk. You talk about family, you talk about where you're from. And, 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 and they're just as friendly as anybody else. It, it, really, <laughs> it really changes your mind from what you may hear on other you know forms of media when you're actually talking to someone from that nation from that culture and you talk to them and they're they're just the same as you and I um you know I can remember one one particular time I was taking um taking a young man to the airport because he had an emergency leave home had to fly home so we went to the 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 civilian airport in uh Abu Dhabi and just staying in the airport watching uh, mothers kiss their their sons and kiss their kids, and they're crying because they're they're leaving, and or seeing the families, you know, rejoice as the you know their family members get off the plane and they're hugging, they're kissing, and the only thing different about that between you and I is the clothes that they wore, and the God that they worship, right? But other than that, there's still people and human beings with love and emotion, and, and all they want to do is love their people and, and 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 be left alone, similar to the way you know a lot of us are. Um, so that's one of the real, the real key things that I picked up along the way, and it's changed um, the way I look at things, the way I perceive things, how I interact with folks, because we're all just people. And they, but they love the relationships. Um, they're hustle Turkey. The, the Turkish folks are hustlers. They wanna, they wanna do business with you, but they want to do business after the relationship is established. And once the relationship established, man, you go in their their, their shop or whatever they're selling, they will give you their best deal. Now, granted, they got to make a profit, but they will give you their best deal. And then, then if you're a repeat customer, oh, my goodness, alive, don't have tea with them twice, right? <laughs> or a third time. And you're, you're talking about, you know, having someone that will look for you to come in and say, hey, I set this off to the side for you. What do you think? Perfect. Thank you. You know, and, and, and there you go. Of all those countries that you've been in, now, Turkey, the Turks were pretty nice to you there, but... Of all of them, though, just trying to decide who's friendly, who's an enemy, seeing the divisions among the various people in this country, like the Sunni versus Shia, 
Were there any of them where you thought, I just, I can't wait to get out of here. Now, you talked to me uh, previously about Bahrain. It was a little uh, scary at times. Describe Bahrain. Um, Bahrain was, was right then when I was there. It was in 2003 when we in, uh, went into Iraq. Um, the whole, you know, the shock and all and, and that sort of thing. So we were, we were um, confined to the base. We couldn't go downtown or couldn't go off base or anything like that so um you know we were stuck on and we were just working you know long 12 14 hour days the i just told a story the other day of how when the king or prince would fly on their their jet um we had to go in uh in the house we had to get off the flight and we had to stop stop the aircraft maintenance stop what we're doing on a flight line and go into the um the hangars or the buildings or whatever because he didn't want to see us um while we're doing that you know and and you know having to deal with that at that time and knowing that we're you know actually dropping bombs and whatnot you know you kind of want to like okay let's go ahead and kick some butt and let's let's go home was it a sense of security on his part or was it just more of a sense of just looking down on troops in general from my impression was just look looking down on on uh, americans i think it was um my personal opinion is that, that you know they might have been feeling they were dealing with the devil, but you know they had to um, you know make the deal to take care of their their own peace or sovereignty or whatever they were looking out for selfishly at that time. And um, but I just thought it was you know always odd that um, you know we're here defending the area, but we can't be seen when um, the the king or the prince would taxi on the highway or taxi on the uh, the, the tarmac. What was it like finally coming home and not having to deal with being over there? I mean, being a National Guard, you don't expect to have to go over there very often. So what was it like to be able to come home from that situation? Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. But but since that time, um, my, my commander uh, eloquently said it uh, this morning. The fact is that we are uh, a peacetime organization, um, you know, effectively um, accomplishing a, a, a wartime mission um so we're we're kind of built for peacetime but um actively you know executing a war and, it, and it's tough so when you do go away you you are very glad to come home because you get a chance to breathe um but the great thing about being a guardsman i think is that when you come home you come home right and you know that your efforts specifically affected the folks you live in your community that you live in you know most of because most of the guys you know the only time they've been out of country is when they leave home they've you know born and raised in south central ohio and that's you know that's where they're born and bred and that's you know that's what we're defending when we go across the sea or or to help a hurricane or whatnot whatever we may do whatever our role is we you know we're taking care of home and you started off wanting to be a pilot did you end up becoming one or did you find yourself liking the other facets of aviation more the maintenance side more no uh you know you know you start having kids and and life gets in in the way really really fast um becoming a private pilot uh well in the military no some other things that happened that 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 transpired and i was not able to do it in a timely fashion because back then when i uh was in and actively uh getting to it the age limit was 27 and a half so essentially, I timed out on age. I couldn't get things done. Got my name on the list, but then I didn't have enough time to wait on that list before the age limit. And they weren't giving age waivers and all that stuff. So, um, you know, since then, um, I did not want to get out because I enjoyed thoroughly um, 
aircraft maintenance. I still had the chance to fly, you know, on the aircraft, um, you know, which was a, still a wonderful thing, a, a, a huge treat, not something that everybody, you know, everybody can say that they do. Um, you know, being, you know, an 18, 19 year old kid learning how to how to fix and maintain, you know, a $60 million aircraft is not something that everybody does every day. Even those in the, in the military, there's not a lot of people that do that or can say they do that. So, um, yeah, I truly enjoy it and I've always enjoyed it and, um, and thank God for the opportunity. Yeah. And pilot license training I, I've seen is, uh, you can buy a house for less expensive than that training. Yeah, it's pricey. I, I don't know. My son was, when he first got out of high school and he's looking around for some of the things he wanted, he wanted to do. And I'm looking up, well, you know, there's a big uh, need for pilots, and I look up the training, and I'm thinking, all right, Mason, we're going to skip this idea. Let's go on to the next thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely correct. If you try to do it on the, on the personal side or by yourself, um, depending on what license you want to get, but if you, you know, for instance, want to be an airline pilot, that can run you 100 grand. Easy. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's not exactly pocket change. No, not not at all. Well, you're now an aircraft maintenance squadron branch chief at an air refueling wing. I'd spoken with the Vietnam War veteran, Vietnam War veteran Jerry Vance of Hilliard last year, and he was describing that process for aerial refueling. But your role, it's the ever-changing technology and now adding the Internet of Things to it. I mean, you're planning, you're organizing, you're directing maintenance activities, establishing production controls. Not a lot of room for error in that type of job. Well, I tell you, it, it, it becomes real stressful when you think that the majority of the aircraft that we fly, the KC-135, were developed in the 50s and built in the late 50s and early 60s. The youngest plane in the, in the air refueling fleet, the KC-135s, uh, is a 64 model. So it's already 56 years old. The youngest one we have it at, at, at uh, Rickenbacker, six four forty eight fourteen eight four, eight forty. I'm sorry. Um, so it's already fifty six years old. So think about having an aircraft that's already fifty six years old, putting two thousand nineteen technology inside of that and expecting it to fly a mission, and it does eloquently. It does it eloquently, thanks to the young men and women that are able to train maintain that aircraft on a daily basis. We've lost one um, Shell 77 uh, six, eight years ago um, due to a, a malfunction, but um, you have two airplanes, two aircraft that are uh, roughly 35, 40 feet apart from each other at 25, 30,000 feet in the air, traveling 300 miles an hour, and they are connected by uh, a tube that is about yay big, so about 12 inches in diameter, um, passing gas at 3,000 uh, pounds per second. Um, yeah, that gets that gets scary. I'm not a boom operator, but I've seen air refueling missions. And if you talk, get a chance to ever talk to a boom operator, it can be very hairy. Yeah, it can be very hairy. You can you can you're close enough to where the boom operator in the in the in their uh, position can look and actually see the eyes of the of the the pilot that they're air refueling in some of the planes. So it's you're very close traveling at, at a high rate of speed at a high altitude. It's it's scary. Period. Or at least one of them, anyway. Let's talk about camaraderie, and I know this is going to sound like a, a question with an obvious answer, and I'm, I guess it is, but what does that mean to you, not in the, the general dictionary term, camaraderie, but to military units who are together 24-7 for a while, and then maybe with another unit 24-7, that camaraderie, that, that family feeling, it's important to you. How so? Um, it's, it's a necessity when you, 
you leave your you know your family your blood relatives your wife your kids and your mom and dad and you go across the pond um and you're spending you know 20 hours with individuals um some of you tend to become very very close um i know i have relationships and friendships that that i will have for the rest of my life the minute i retire there's some there's a couple of guys i i know right now i'm closing my eyes and envisioning them um that i will continue to talk to on a regular basis um deploying with with friends like that with family like that makes the, the the time away from your your other family easier it makes you help it helps you manage it better um and then when someone has a a bad day or they're homesick you know you can pick them up and help get them on and then when it's your turn they can help you you know help pick you up and get you on it's it's a very integral part of what we do we have to establish those relationships and have to foster that camaraderie so that we can make it because we're all human beings right we are you know in in maslow's hierarchy of need we still need that social interaction we need the touch and the feel and the love from others to make sure that we are part of the group so having that making sure we establish that um is a very integral part of what we do for for a lot of folks um when you leave your your family your blood relatives your wife your children you know mom and dad for a lot of these young folks um you know when you spend that much time with with another group of people you become family um so camaraderie may not even be the word it's it's you know the evolution of family because you do become family you start caring about one another you start asking about hey how's the wife doing how's your husband doing how's mom and dad doing and, and your kids and all that stuff um and my role in that is to is to foster the environment to make sure that happens because we get so wrapped up in the day to day um particularly when you are deployed in the deployed location you get so wrapped up in the in the mission what you're doing the work the length of time the heat the you know you're you're away from your family you're missing your your home you're missing the comforts of of life you may have to share a room with three other people and, and that sort of thing and in my role as a senior NCO um is to make sure that all of that stuff that is is going on i make it my mission to make sure that the environment allows them to take a breath become family you know become friends become become you know more than just acquaintances so they can help each other make it through because that bonding that that friendship that family will help you make it through because i've seen you know i've seen young men get their dear john letters i've seen young ladies who just gave birth 2 months prior and now they're gone for 6 months right what effect does that have on a young woman that she has to leave her her newborn because you know she's on the list to be deployed and they just you know she, she the minute she becomes healthy again after you know pregnancy and, and and gets signed off by the doctor you know she's on a plane she's going to go what you know are you kidding me you know so as a senior and still I have to know things like that I have to be aware of things like that because that young lady needs my attention because she can't be what she's meant to be and that's a mother to her child she can't do that so that that has a psychological effect so i have to pay attention to that because we still need her to do her job and if she has a psychological effect or she's you know not in it a day you know it's a domino effect she might not do her job correctly which would impact somebody else not doing their job correctly which impact that young man or that young man woman who is looking the enemy in the eye and they're fighting they don't get the cover they need they don't get the support they need they don't get what they need to stay alive so we have to as a senior and ceo we have to make sure we take care of our people we have to make sure we establish an environment where they can become family 
so that they take care of one another because I may not see that, that young lady every day. I may not have eyes on her every day, but someone who sits next to her does. You know, I got to foster the environment where they can make sure that they're taking care of one another so that we can ultimately take care of the, the true war fighter that's on the ground that's got a gun in his hand and, and he's firing a bullet and getting bullets fired at him. And speaking of family, I mean, you also have a, a real family at home, not just you, but military personnel mm-hmm. in general. How do you find that balance between a soldier and a father and husband? Well, you know, I've been doing this for 29 years. It's just a part of who I am. Um, and I met my wife in the, in the military as well, so she understands that. Um, you know, the, the, the balance is, is a dance because what I try to help people figure out that um, this is not what you do versus or it's what you do versus who you are um, you got to make sure that when you leave the gate uh, in, in the evening or whenever your, your shift is over and you go home whatever's going on there you leave it behind the gate and go home and be your be the father be the husband or wife and uh, mom and your dad you you be that for that time you're there because there's there's inevitably going to be a time when you're not going to have that time you're going to be away for for days and weeks and months at a time so when you have the opportunity to be mom and dad to be husband and wife you take that time um, and that's a big part of what I try to um, to coach my, my airmen and, and, and try to tell everybody that I get a chance to come and talk and when I have that able to, the ability to have that conversation is to make sure they leave their stuff, their problems, their stress about the base on the base so they can take it home, so they can go home and be dad or mom, hubby and wifey. I spoken to Dana Roberts in the street and she brought up the children and I hadn't thought about it until she actually mentioned it, but you know, the military life is hard enough on, on the mom or the dad in the military, mm-hmm. but the children are in it too, right? I mean, Absolutely. It's, I mean, they're just as part of the military. They just don't wear the uniform. Absolutely. The, your, your family serves every bit as much as the, the member does. There's no doubt about that. Um, because when things go wrong, as a matter of fact, we had uh, a young man who's deployed right now and the tornado impacted his, his family. So, um, you know, he's away while his house is, you know, turned upside down because of a tornado. And the one thing, getting back to the family and the camaraderie, you know, by the time we found out within, you know, six or eight hours, we had a group of guys over there taking care of them, making sure they had everything. She had everything they needed. We cleared off some debris. We made way for some things so that she could be comfortable and not have to worry about, you know, the insurance and everything else she could uh, not to worry about cleaning up, we took care of that for her. And that goes to that camaraderie and that family because we did it in, a, in an instant without without even having to, before I could say, can I have any, there was already guys there, mm-hmm. right? So that's how we, that's how we do that. So um, your family serves as much as, as much as you. So when you're away, we will take care of them. Um, but they miss you. Um, they go through their ups and downs. You know, it, invariably when you go away, the hot water tank breaks or something happens and, and, those left at home have to do that by themselves. Everything that you normally do every day now has to be picked up by somebody else. Either your your son, your daughter, your wife, or your husband have to pick up that piece because you're not there. So they serve every bit as much as you, you do. And a lot of times it's a lot harder on them than it is you because you just go home and go to your rack and, and, and sleep or go to the gym and work out. They still have to do the day-to-day without you there. Have your kids learned to pick up some of your uh, your tinkering abilities? <laughs> No, my kid, my kid, my my youngest daughter, she's a tinkerer, so she by just by nature just 
tinkers with a whole bunch of crap. So <laughs> that's another conversation in, in itself. But, um, you know, my, my son, uh, my sons would, would do their best. My daughters always try to help out mom a little bit more. Um, you know, and I, and I do my best to make sure I call and talk to them every night. And they, you know, they try to do their best because they understand that, that I'm away. And, and, you know, so they have to help mom pick up the pieces. And Ed, uh, this is basically the last question, but it's basically the same one I ask everyone. What advice would you give to active duty or retired military servicemen and women who might be struggling either adjusting to civilian life? I know you're still in the military, but just also those struggling to fit in and, and find a purpose. You've been very instrumental, for example, in uh, joint diversity and inclusion initiatives. So whether it's applying those principles for those initiatives or other principles you've learned and developed as a leader, what do you say to those who are maybe trying to find their purpose? Um, you know, use the foundation of your, your military training experience to, to look at a new challenge. You know, civilian life can be a new challenge for a lot of soldiers, airmen, sailors, Marines. Um, you know, look at it like that and, and, and hit it just like we would. We would, you know, step back, evaluate it, you know, figure out a game plan and go hit it. Um, you know, if you, there's things you don't understand, the first thing we want to do in the military is go find a subject matter expert. Well, if you're having struggle, you know, go find other folks that have, have been out for a while. You know, go find them, talk to them, meet them at the VFW or the uh, American Legion, talk to those guys and see if there's anything that they're in. Um, that can kind of keep you busy, you know, help you find another job um, and definitely take the time to find um, your purpose in life. Um, everybody has has that special purpose, that God given gift, the reason why they're they're on this in this world. And if you take the time to find that, that in itself can be, you know, a journey, you know, finding your purpose and, and uh, trying to understand it and utilize that purpose to um, to do better by your fellow man. Chief Master Sergeant Edward Taylor, congratulations on the promotion. Thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us, and thank you for your continued service. Thank you for having me. I love it. Thank you. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of marching orders, or let us know about a veteran you believe should tell his or her story. Email us at online at thisweeknews.com, subject line marching orders. And check us out online at thisweeknews.com and look at our website for our new section, thisweeknews.com slash marching orders. You're going to find all of our, our podcasts and profiles there. And look for us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Everything is at This Week News. For This Week Community News, I'm Scott Hummel. Thanks for listening.